Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we have a returning special guest for the first time in more than a year. It's Jay Bayliss. Jay. Hey, how are we doing? <laughs> Very good, thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad. Do I get like a medal or something or like a little pin badge <laughs> uh, as like a third time uh, returning guest? Well, it's nice for you to come on an episode that isn't fundamentally cursed to its core for once. I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about a medal. We'll, we'll think about that. I don't know. That's kind of where I excel. <laughs> yeah, 40 quid, we can give you that. You know, okay. that's, um, that's you know, kind of a medal in a way. Um, so yeah, Jay, you have launched your second game as part of your independent studio, Bitten. It is Bitten, right? Bitten Studio. Yeah, I think, I think that's the canonical uh, phrasing at this point. Awesome. So yeah, Bitten Studio launched its uh, first game. Sorry, its first game, Lena's Inception, back in 2020. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so, so it's just going, it's going very, very messily so far. No, no, no. We're all we're all tired men. Um. <laughs> yes. Um. So your second game, Cassette Beast, has just launched on PC, and uh, you can play it through Game Pass as well as playing it on Steam. Congratulations, that's awesome. Thanks it's so also coming to Switch, Xbox, and Xbox Game Pass. Yes. Awesome. Fantastic. On May 25th. So, mm-hmm. yep, people will be able to check it out on more formats very soon. It's got fantastic reviews. Last time I checked, it was an 86 Metacritic, which is fantastic. Ooh. A really, really good launch. I saw it described as it feels like a Pokemon game or Pokemon like game that's aged with its audience in a way that Pokemon has not, which I thought was a brilliant way to describe what I've played of it. And um, yeah, so a fantastic uh, work, Jay, um, to you and uh, Tom Coxon, your partner at the studio. So yeah, how has it been going? How's your launch week been treating you? It's been pretty manic. There's something very stressful about kind of putting something out in the world that you know you've been working on privately, I and mean, you guys, I'm sure, have like felt the same when it comes to like podcasts. We've already like become nostalgic for the time when we hadn't put anything out, so there was no pressure and no one was paying attention. Um, but like now it's out there it's kind of like it gets a bit surreal and you get kind of very divorced from the fact that you made stuff that people are playing and like Mm. i don't know i have like i've been watching people playing it on like twitch and i just have this kind of very like weird averse reaction just because it's like i don't know it's it's kind of i've kind of forgotten that i made it i've forgotten that i made this thing and i kind of can't (laughs) remember having made any of it Maybe I have some sort of like stress, like induced amnesia. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that might be it. It's it's interesting as well because I had a few colleagues who were mentioning it in like um, a sort of team chat this week, and that was very surreal to see them talking about this thing that you've discussed with me on and off for you know the whole time you've been making it for three years, three plus <laughs> years, basically three and a half years. Mm-hmm. So you know that's that's quite surreal because I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know why it's set in a place called new Wirral because i know all about jay and you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um yeah it's exciting I, I am interested like you know obviously without saying like how it has done because you know that's that's mm. up to you that's that's private or anything are, are there easy ways to kind of gauge its success because i you know i think in like you know on podcasts we can sort of see how many downloads we've had like when we put out youtube videos there's all this kind of like spread of analytics and it's like instantaneous you can see like this is how something's performing. Like you mentioned there, seeing reviews or seeing people streaming it or whatever. But is is there a central source you can return to? And if there is, are you obsessed with checking it? Because that's definitely what I would be doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, on like the Steam backend, we've got like, this is your sales number and it updates every hour. And I can like obsessively like hit refresh on that. <laughs> right. <one day. laughs> um, it's, I don't know. It's kind of hard because I don't really know what we thought like would get for the, like, I think critically is the big thing right now because you know sales like 
can go up, they can go down, they can tail off very quick. So I think it's very early on in terms of gauging how yeah. well we're selling because it could be that we're like, oh, this is cool to talk about for like one week and then Zelda comes out and then everyone like forgets that we've made a game forever and that's fine. Um, <laughs> I guess like critically, like we were, we were kind of hoping like, you know, if we get that 75% on Metacritic, um, we'd be happy because that puts you in the, the little happy green zone instead of the sad yellow zone. Right. <laughs> um, but um, we were, we've been kind of like overwhelmed with the response. I guess we spent a lot of time looking at this stuff, so we've been overly critical of it. But then people are coming in and seeing it, and I guess like they're seeing it without having any expectation. And when you make something, you have the expectations that you've built up for yourself for that thing. So like mm. when you make something like this, there's so many flaws that I see, but then like people are just seeing the stuff that I've gotten over early on and mm. liking it the first time around. And I think I always like kind of forget that aspect. I always there's like stuff that I've like written that I thought was like oh that was alright, and then people would like really jam like really like jam with it, and it's like oh that's that's kind of cool. Um, mm. But it's really hard. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. And um, I don't think we can say it's like a success or anything at this point. Um, but critically, this is like um, mm. we've been over the moon because people really like the game, and um, so that's been fantastic. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you still have you know multiple platform launches to come. So uh, yeah, yes, yeah, you're only going to find more people. But yeah, really exciting. And uh, yeah, I can I can't imagine how surreal it must be to get it out there. It's also funny seeing people. I say like that Eurogamer's review, which I thought was really good, um, praised your <laughs> the lefty politics of the game, basically. <laughs> and I just found that really funny because, again, what I know about you. And then, like, playing the game a bunch more this week, being like, oh, yeah, this is lefty as fuck. And that's actually, like, quite quite rare for a game, um, really. Um, but it's also not so overt about it that it's 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 like reading twitter but yeah it's not is it nice to see people respond to that stuff yeah i didn't like intend it to be as explicit as it was again it's one of these things where like we write stuff and like we'll say like oh that's a funny line and we'll put it in the game like um i think one of the things people respond well to is there's like a plot line so at the start of the, this is only minor spoilers um at the start of the game you kind of um encounter these like vampires and you get on a, there's a quest that like says like you have to kind of like take them down at the vampire stronghold uh, with this character, and then you get there and then you find out they're just estate agents and they're just trying <laughs> to like kind of capitalize on the local kind of um, property market. Um, and like that was like we, that was something that we put in because it was like funny first rather than because we had like any like overt kind of political <laughs> agenda. But we're very happy that people are responding positively to it. I think we, yeah. I think a lot of the stuff in the game it was just kind of like Tom and I trying to make each other laugh with like weird ideas. Um, mm. There's a lot of like monster puns, uh, like pun names and stuff that just came from like, wouldn't it be funny if we did this? And yeah. I wasn't thinking too hard. I guess it, it's, it's quite easy for indie games to kind of go a little bit like too eager on the politics and feel like you're being preached to. Um, and I really wanted to avoid that because I don't want people to yell at us on the internet. But people seem to have responded well. And uh, that's been nice. Nice. Yeah. I think it's because superficially it it looks like, you know, let's say you want to play an RPG where you catch monsters <laughs> you know that let's say like you wanted an alternative to the market leader in that mm -hmm. respect then this superficially this is a very beautiful looking version of that type of game and so you do sort of like when you're going through like um is a harbor town at the start or mm -hmm. new harbor town so when you're going through that location you're just like oh this is a, a beautiful version of an RPG town and then when you encounter the monsters you're like oh there's a really nice you know sort of coherent art style to the way these monsters are designed even as strange as they get and that stuff is what 
that's what your first impression is made of. You have to get like a bit deeper into it until you find that stuff, mm-hmm. which I think helps. But I did admittedly encounter a vampire outside of basically a payday loan place. And I was like, oh yeah, Jay wrote this. You know, like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, but yeah, really cool. So I mean, you yes. rented in Brighton, you know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no double glazing and like a grand a month for a, a yeah. single room with lots of hair on the floor. Good, Good stuff. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was tough down there, man. So yeah, Jay, uh, so that aside, we'll get into the making of the game a whole bunch in this episode. But I did want to ask you what you've been playing lately, because I I know you're you're, you're constantly got something on the go. Um, you had a big Genshin Impact for, run for a while there. Mm-hmm. You and I variously have played Age of Empires four and recently Fortnite and obviously like um, Dark Tide and uh, you know Halo Infinite for a while. You know we kind of had that on the go. But what have you been up to lately on the game side? Um, great question. Uh, I'm still kind of chipping away at uh, Fire Emblem Engage. Uh, I right. keep telling my partner, like, okay, this is it. I'm about to finish it. And then, like, something else will happen in the game. <laughs> or they'll throw, like, another three missions at me. Um, I, I was a, I'm a big Fire Emblem guy. I really, really enjoyed Three Houses. I, I think I told you, I think this feels kind of like the Stars Channel version of Fire <laughs> Emblem, where it's, like, um, it's got the production quality to an extent of, like, the HBO tier, you know, three houses, but also the, but the script isn't like, is not quite there. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I think it looks beautiful. Um, it's, it's, I think the, the flow of Fire Emblem of having these little guys and you, I think, um, Bask, you do talked about this, um, on the pod. Um, the stories that you kind of invent for yourself with these characters is way more interesting than like Ugh. the kind of standard fantasy anime fare they give them. Um, mm. you know, you're attached to this character because, they've got a longbow and now you've given them a horse and now they've got the best range in the game not because of like the singular character trait I think that's very true Um, I've been thinking about that as I've been playing it actually I'm I'm working my way through that my partner actually have been smashing through all of the Resident Evil uh, remakes Um, Mm. so I think when it launched we got two but we actually got too scared um, from (laughs) Mr. X uh, and we actually stopped playing for several years because it was too spooky. Um, you should have just modded him into a tr- into Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> um, but then, like the four remake came out, and there was this sense of like you got to get this. So we like smashed through that, and was like, well, that was great. And um, the three remake was eight pounds on the PlayStation Store, and that's like that was that what seemed like worth. a great plan, like a great price for uh, that game. Which again, it becomes, like, it becomes a nine out of ten at that price. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Smashed through that, and then last night we uh, finished Resident Evil Two. Um, the kick is now carried on to again. Uh, we just got Resident Evil Six, and that feels like a real uh, step down after playing those three <laughs> succession. Um, Resident Evil Six is is wild and weird and brilliant. Yeah, I can see bored. I can see why they kind of stopped and like said like we've gone too far here and then, like took a bit of a break. It's it's um, the most it's the most brilliantly dreadful game ever made. <laughs> you can you can see that like there's a sense of like the technology hadn't been there up until that point to kind of throw like Michael Bay action set pieces every two minutes. And it must have been so liberating to get to do the most ridiculous stuff in the engine. Um, mm. But it doesn't, like, lend itself well to, like, a horror experience. I think we'll, like, modestly chip through it and then maybe, like, forget about it. And then, like, just never come back to it. I feel like it might be a strong, like, do not finish. Um, well, yeah, as enough... Have you, so, you, so you've done the 4 remake now as well? We've done, right? yeah, we did 2, 3, and yeah. 4, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's some suggestion that 
a version of Resi 5 might be next on the yes. on the cards from that finale 2-4. But whether it's the same Resi 5, that's um, I think it'll be something else. That's what's being hinted there. But we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, not to spoil too much of Resi 4. <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay, interesting. So that's good. I do like the idea that um, Fire Emblem Fates is the heels or power book 2 um, of uh, the Fire Emblem <laughs> franchise. That's, uh, that's good. Um so one other thing I was going to ask was actually, you went to Bath last year. I met it's you for, for lunch. And um, please tell us about it. Obviously, we're big. You know, we talk about Bath a lot on this podcast. And some of your stories about Bath really made me laugh. Um, so, yeah, I just, no pressure. But I just wanted to ask you how that adventure went for you and your partner. Um, I enjoyed Bath. I think this was about my, my, my uh, birthday last year. Um, right. Uh, it was like a kind of a grown-up uh, adult trip to the city. Um <laughs> see some sights, enjoy some lovely architecture. I did see the JC's kitchen tent and then Ooh. like kind of did the Leonardo pointing gif um, <laughs> to my partner who had like no context of why this was funny to me that there was a content. Um, and then feeling vaguely embarrassed, we, I didn't like pursue it further. Um, Wise. Yeah, I, and I think the, the my takeaway anecdote was um, and my partner is very well read and we really wanted to go to the um the jane austen museum mm-hmm. so that was kind of the highlight of the trip and then eventually we got there after having we booked ahead and we got there and um uh, crucially she is not a fan of uh what i'd kind of describe as like amateur performance whether that be kind of <laughs> acting or music um and then they kind of ferry you into a room and then like a young lad comes out in like a full period outfit and he's like Hello, everyone. I am Mr. Wickham from Pride and Prejudice. I just kind of felt uh, my partner's soul kind of leave her body in the chair next to me. And I kind of enjoyed it through that, like, kind of silent knowledge that this was uh, suddenly completely turned into a not what we expected or perhaps wanted. And like, oh. my takeaway really was that, that very, like, moment of that happening. Amazing. Yeah, like I was actually just today describing the yieldy cosplay that goes down at the Jane Austen uh, mm. Center um, to describe like what we should do with the royal family here, where it's like it's like one dude in a king outfit and you go and meet him <laughs> at Buckingham Palace and he gets 32 grand a year. And that's like that should be the royal family, basically, that one it, guy. Um, so, he should yeah. have to stand outside the palace and kind of ferry people in. They have like a guy <laughs> doing that for the Jane Austen. But, uh, well, the best thing about that guy is he makes perfect sense on the doorstep of the Jane Austen Museum, but on his walk to and from work, he looks absolutely preposterous. So if you're ever crossing over a traffic crossing with him and you can see everyone else being like, what the fuck? <laughs> Not trying to make eye contact with just a guy who looks like he's fallen through time. My other big memory was that the train ride there was... Um, the moment that the, the announcement that the queen had died happened and then we got off the train and like people were like yelling in the streets like the queen has died um, <laughs> it's very bizarre country um, I think I think this is not going to help uh, sell our country as a very serious one with your international <laughs> audience the queen um, has died I mean, Bath not taking it well the queen, ha- the queen has died you pointing hey look it's JC's kitchen <laughs> What an experience. Well, uh, I never. It is a tent. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's good. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased to have that story um, on the record because it's um, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. The soul leaving the body thing. That's great. Um, so, yes, great stuff, Jay. So, to get into Cassette Beast, then, I've basically got two sections of questions here. It's the most intensive plan I've ever made for this podcast oh, wow. because I came up with it at the start of the year, this, you know, what I wanted to do on this episode. And, like, 
you know, I guess I'm probably taking advantage of your good nature too much here, but I really <laughs> did want to understand how a game gets made. You know, when you're you're sort of like at your scale of developer, essentially, like a, a two-person team with a bunch of um, contributors. I suppose, like, that was something I just really wanted to dig into. So I suppose, like, to, to start with, what is Cassette Beast and where did the idea come from? <laughs> Great question. Cassette Beast is a monster-collecting RPG. It is a game about transforming into monsters using cassette tapes in cassette players. So like, the premise is that, you know, these characters have cassette players and they have tapes and each one's like a monster tape. And then when you pop that in, you play it, you transform into the monster mm-hmm. and then you do turn-based battle. Uh, and then it's kind of like an open world adventure about kind of going around kind of you're on this like island called New Wirral and you're you know attempting to find your way out and you kind of explore around and you meet characters and uh, get to know them and do their stories as you kind of like go on this uh, journey essentially. Mm, yeah, so really cool and I think that it's it's interesting that this kind of game started proliferating more in the last few years. Suddenly it's kind of caught on as a kind of like I suppose indie spin of you know something familiar <laughs> that um, that has we've seen like many times with you know Mario and Zelda and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but now we're seeing it with um, you know with monster collecting, quote unquote. <laughs> so yeah, it's cool. But I, I was kind of like I was always just thought yours was in pole position in my head because it felt like your the cassette tape idea set it apart a little bit, but. Um, there's also like a lot more to the game which we'll get into but i suppose then jay like obviously your your last role you were at uh, chucklefish you worked on wargroove and starbound mm-hmm. uh, wargroove was like you know i know you're a huge part of that project so i suppose like when in the course of leaving chucklefish do you and tom your dev partner know you wanted to make this game uh, you showed me some early images on your phone in a pub <laughs> on a wet and windy brighton night in december 2019 i believe that so, sounds about right yeah, how far along was it at that point, and how long you'd been thinking about it? Um, so we basically went independent that summer of 2019. Um, we did, like, so we were working on Lenin's Inception, and basically the plan was like, right, wrap this up, uh, put this out. Like Lenin's Inception is like our first game, but it's kind of like, I guess like um, game like game teams have like a concept of like game one, game two, and Lenin's Inception is kind of like game zero because it didn't come from a place of like having budget or anything or like. It was just—it was kind of essentially like Tom's hobby project from years back that we'd eventually turned into a, like a semi-commercial project. Um, but it's kind of like a very kind of scrappy and kind of uh, punky game, uh, which is to say that it's a little bit jank and only runs on PC. Um, <laughs> but we had the—we we were like, we're gonna put this out and then we can work on like a proper game, you know, and get funding for it. And that was the plan. Um, we didn't like have an idea of what that was gonna be straight away. Interestingly. Um, we had like a few ideas. We were, we basically were like, we needed to make, you know, a commercial product, something that we could make well and that we'd be interested in making, but also like something that people would buy. And we didn't like settle on a monster collecting game straight away. For a time, we kind of played around with this idea of like a roguelike kind of superhero game. It um, didn't really pan out. We didn't have like the kind of, we didn't kind of gel to the idea. We really wanted something where we could be like, we could describe it and get excited for it because then we'd have ideas and stuff for it. And I think we kind of kept coming back to the idea of a monster collecting game because we kind of had this financial theory that there's a huge amount of opportunity in that space because I'm like, and I'm fine saying Pokemon. We can say Pokemon. You know, Pokemon's huge, which like Pokemon's the biggest media kind of property on the planet. 
and through kind of some sort of logic you could argue that as like as a consequence like the monster collecting genre is the most popular game genre on the planet but whilst like cod comes out and like is an fps it's really big but then like it doesn't cause everyone else to say like oh shit we can't make like an fps game now because you know cod's the big boy um mm. we had this idea that there was actually at least like obviously a lot of people who are into pokemon are into pokemon the ip not necessarily it like as a genre but if like some percentage of that were people who would just like to play any po- like pokemon style you know collecting monster game um then we could make something that people would have to buy um there were a few early indie uh monster games kind of kicking around that time temtem came out uh pretty mm-hmm. early on in development for us um and there was a sense of like oh is this have these guys like beaten us to the punch but we kind of kept at it and essentially it came from a place of we're big into this kind of game uh we think we could make a really good one and we just have this idea that people like games in this genre beyond this one ip and it's mm. it was kind of a hard sell i think it was a hard sell to kind of publishers and stuff because in the end they look at pokemon and they say well you're not going to beat pokemon so you know what's the point and also like turn-based rpgs are not like a cool genre uh, i think there's definitely like a perception that um it's kind of like an old school or a bit niche or a bit old hat and like mm. that's not the kind of genre people invest in so like early on we kind of knew we'd have a couple of these problems uh or like challenges i guess um in terms of getting this off the ground but then like the kind of more we kind of um kind of brainstormed ideas around it we kind of got more and more on board and then we started like prototyping around like late 2019 samuel when we met up in a dreary pub in a dreary month <laughs> i think what i'd shown you was like a couple months of work like max it was like mm. really like not much there i think it was just like um we had like monster sprites in there and like the bare bones of like i can make a battle run so yeah it was like super early on uh at that point what's interesting is i suppose that like i consider that almost like a lifetime ago for me like a lot's happened in my life since then <laughs> what's it like for being a game developer when you are locked on one project for that that much time and like when you reflect on where you started versus where you are now existentially what does that do to you what's your reaction i guess i think for me it feels like, a, like not much has happened like the pandemic happened like immediately after but it was fine because i'd already like gone crazy working from home alone at that right. point um, i was like six months ahead of everyone else but then you know i've like i've lived in the same place i've been doing basically the same kind of thing for the past three years so I think like for me it feels like weirdly like not much has happened. I mean like there's a lot of like going on in the world and in my life as well, but like I it, it feels like it doesn't feel like I've got my 3 years worth. Um <laughs> I kind of like sacrificed 3 years of like working time basically to this. Um <laughs> and now it's only really now that I feel like I'm in the kind of like the after period. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess the the next era starts now essentially. Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay, interesting. So Jake, you what you mentioned Lena's Inception only came to PC, mm-hmm. but like um, it's a it's a really nice looking two D Zelda inspired sort of top down game that people might find they own from an itch bundle because I know it's uh-huh. like at least one charity bundle I believe. Um, so I was curious, did you was there anything you took from that game into this as your kind of first indie project? Oh yeah, totally. Like um, so like Lena's Inception to break it down is kind of like. I think it started like Tom's original project was actually to make a procedurally generated remake of uh, Link's Awakening, and then right. at some point he kind of uh, pivoted it into like his own original thing. But it is ultimately kind of like a proc gen Zelda experiment, um, and 
we kind of ended up like kind of shifting it around and giving it this plot and um, kind of setting where it's kind of this kind of creepy pasta version of Zelda, uh, <laughs> where you play as like a town NPC in like a very like a very apparent like Zelda pastiche, um, and then the the game's equivalent of Link is killed early on because you failed to give him a tutorial in time, so you end up <laughs> kind of playing the game out. Uh, like in his place as the kind of memory starts corrupting and the game starts breaking down because the rules aren't being met correctly um mm. and it has this kind of weird energy like i'm looking back on it now it's actually it's it's a very kind of dark feeling game it's kind of got this like nightmarish kind of vibe to it we took i think one thing we took a lot from that was mix i think people really gel in like gel with like the mix of like light-hearted and then dark so there's like some light-hearted moments there's a lot of like joking in that and like kind of fun character bits but also like there's like horrific child boy hero murder on screen and kind of like horrendously corrupted like monsters and stuff and i think we really kind of got attached to that mix of like light-hearted kind of fun nintendo vibe and then like the kind of creepypasta horror thing mm. i think people gel with that as well and i think like even like younger players i think like that kind of thing is probably bigger with 12 year olds than it is with us um I think people like kind of getting weirded out and creeped out by games because games have like such a massive potential to right. be uncanny. Um, and we definitely like took that into Cassette Beast for sure. Uh, one thing I didn't actually put in our plan here, but it's definitely worth asking, <laughs> which is if you, when you decide which project you're going to work on, what do your, your first weeks and months look like? How do you decide, okay, what, here's what I'm doing for the next like two months. Here's mm-hmm. what Tom's doing for the next two months. What does that look like at the very start of like development? Um, so it involves a lot of like we'd like spend a lot of time like meeting up in like uh, cafes and stuff with like sketchbooks and like notepads and just being like what is this we, we start out with a bare bones idea of like okay monster collecting RPG you transform into monsters great like what does the rest of it look like and like what does the tone of that like kind of imply so there's a lot of like um, meeting up in like Brighton Loading Bar and like hashing out like okay fusion how does fusion work what does that mean like what's the structure of this game what are you like doing um so like we had to kind of figure out what like what the kind of totality of assets would be in the game and then over time we kind of schedule right okay it takes x amount of time to make a monster how many monsters can we make or it takes x amount of time to make like a dungeon how many dungeons can we put in the game and Mm. kind of hash out the full kind of schedule for the whole game so pretty Mm. early on um after the first couple of months of doing that we had like a full schedule of like right this is what every day of the next three years is going to look like. Oh, and this wow. is what we're doing for it. Um, and one thing that does help is that it kind of helps prevent that kind of indie, uh, you know, forever working on a project and perfecting it instead of just kind of getting it out. Um, we really wanted to kind of like hit our deadlines and stuff, especially as like a first time uh, funded project on the studio. Um, so it's kind of like, what is the best like kind of version of all this stuff we can make in the time we've now allotted for ourselves? Mm. essentially i've never produced uh i would say a creative project because i'm i'm very lazy but i'm always starting things in my head and you have that initial burst of excitement it's the raw creativity you're probably making the biggest leaps in terms of like ideas mm-hmm. um do, do you do you find that with this you know like is is there a part of the process which is just more exciting and fun and is it the beginning i actually don't think it's the beginning because like um 
like it took a while for us to start getting into like, the really fun stuff of like um, kind of creating like um, boss encounters and stuff or like writing quest lines. So like even though early on we had the hash, we like hashed out like okay, there's this many partner characters in the game and they have quest lines. We didn't like know what they were at that point. Mm. So there's a lot of like okay, what's this person's quest line and brainstorming ideas and then being like okay, zombie estate agents. That's really funny. Or like, what does this boss look like? And it's like, oh, it's a big skeleton monster. And that's like fun. It's like fun kind of doing the kind of in the weeds, having to come up with a creative solution. Right. Like on the schedule day. Um, and then like kind of writing this game with the kind of full game script out and stuff like that was a lot of fun because you got to kind of like flesh out the characters. So there's these characters that would like kind of be archetypes or like vague descriptions on paper and then kind of getting to kind of figure out what their voice is and then like, you know, putting that into script form and then seeing that in a game is very kind of rewarding as you go. Um, I feel like the middle was probably the most chill of the project because you're kind of like doing a lot of that creative stuff or like um, I was like churning out monster designs and stuff and it's kind of fun. I was, obviously, like the end of a game is like a lot of like wrapping up and like bug fixing and uh, nitty gritty, but I feel like that middle stage is actually a lot of fun as well. Okay. Mm. So you say you made that schedule of what you'd be doing for the next three years how, mm. how much do you stick to that and how much do you deviate from it i say i say we this is all tom <laughs> crucially he's like the kind of smart numbers guy uh and i just like talk a lot and turn up on podcasts um <laughs> i i think we did a, i think we were pretty good on the schedule i think we also gave ourselves a lot of like allowance we we're like okay okay here's like a week at the end of every month where we haven't got everything scheduled because there's no no chance we'll have done everything we wanted on the previous sections of the game in that time so like stuff will run over or like stuff will be like more of a drag than we think or think certain things will actually take like a lot less time Mm. um i think i think what happens with the schedule is um tom will ask me how long i can make like how long it takes for me to make something and i'll I'll give him like a confident answer and then he'll privately like double that on his schedule and then not tell me and then he was correct (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing this is basically how um that producer yoshida saved final fantasy 14 he basically (laughs) had a big spreadsheet and was like every sale is like one person's day of time essentially and i like the idea that um your your tom was doing that just for you yeah yeah pretty much long enough um yeah okay that's that's interesting so the art style of the game, Jay, like mm-hmm. um, you are, you know, a, an amazingly talented artist. And I suppose, like, how does cassette beats look different from Wargroove in your mind's eye? And how do you come up with an art style for a game like this? Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, I got, I'm a pixel artist. I think I'm always going to be doing something primarily pixel art uh, based because, you know, that's where I excel. I think early on we were like, what does our game look like? Is it 3D? Is it like kind of 2D and like uh, kind of high res 2D? Um, and I think it was a case of, well, I can either make a crap 3D looking game or like a good pixel art looking game. So we'll stick to pixel art. I think so like early on, we did like a lot of art tests of figuring out like what does the next game like look like. And I was like super keen on the, I guess like Octopath, like HD 2D, although I believe HD 2D is like a legal trademark. Um, oh, is it? Yeah, I think it's actually like a brand term now uh, for Square Enix, which is great. I, I really like the idea of mixing kind of 3D and uh, 2D pixel art. And part of that was actually a cynical business decision in that I was kind of starting to see uh, like I started making in like working on like commercial indie games in like 2012 and like this is like before like you could just put anything on Steam and like seeing the tides turn in terms of like what you need to do to get noticed on an indie game there mm. are indie games that were coming out like in the Xbox Live Arcade era that would not sell like 10,000 copies now I think um, right. that were doing huge back then just because like the bar has risen so high um, mm. 
So I really wanted to move away from like just a 2D game, partially because I felt like audiences like look at 2D games and be like, oh, that's a cheap pixel art game. There was a cheap, there's a, there were diamond dozen. Um, so I had to kind of learn 3D. I mean, I touched on 3D a little bit in there when I was at uh, university, but um, I kind of had to teach myself like Blender from scratch. Um, and I was really interested in melding kind of like 2D pixel art textures in 3D space. Mm. Um, the actual like 3D kind of architecture of the game is done with a program called Cubicle, uh, which is essentially like a voxel like editor where you can create like blocky 3D pixel art models and export it, which is great because I kind of got to kind of uh, circumvent a lot of the 3D stuff I didn't really know early on. But it, it kind of came out of like a necessity ultimately, like, right, I have pixel art skills. I think this game needs to be pixel art plus 3D. This is the game that I can make with that time. Um, the actual kind of art style of the game in a lot of ways is like very, we kind of strip back on, if you think of like, um, you know, Octopath Traveler and like the Live Alive remake, they have a very kind of textured pixely look and it's very high detail. Mm. Um, I mean, these, these, guys, those games have like big art teams on the environments and I'm just like, I did like all the environment on myself, so I didn't have the time to do it. So right. it was kind of a case of like, what can I do that is like feasible in that time? And what we ended up with was kind of, I kind of call it like HD, like GBA. Right. So it's like a lot of like, like a very small color palette across the whole game, rather than like overly textured, like grass and ground texture. There's a lot of like block colors with like little details to kind of break it up. And it kind of gives the game kind of like a, kind of like a bright, simple look to it, I think. Um, mm. I think it helps with readability as well, because sometimes there's like a lot going on. But yeah, ultimately it was kind of a collaboration between like needing to make something commercial, but also needing to make something that like I can make. And this, it was essentially like, this is the best look I can make for a game that I can make a full game of in time. Mm. Okay. D HD GBA, grab it now before Square Enix does. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like GBA <laughs> might be trademarked. <laughs> does it, uh, does it like rankle at all when you read reviews and people are like, it looks just like Pokemon Red Blue. And you're like, <laughs> no, I was very specifically going for the GBA entries. <laughs> I mean, we've had a few comparisons. I mean, like the, uh, the DS... Uh, Pokemon games had that kind of combination, but they didn't like. Yeah. They didn't go for the extreme kind of 3D perspectives and stuff. Um, yeah, I think it was more novel just because the hardware was 3D capable. Um, mm. We've had some compliments in the. Uh, I think I think um, press have kind of picked up on the idea that it's like quite simple in a lot of ways, but also it kind of helps with like readability and things. Mm. Um, I think things like you know having a very like limited color palette, like there's one grass shade that gets used for all the regular grass in the game and stuff like that. Or there's one shade of red that gets used everywhere. Kind of helps kind of unify a lot of the art assets. Um, right. And also saves a lot of time. And I think that stuff sells it a bit as kind of like a cohesive um, mm. art style. But this is the first time I've like designed a world, like kind of the, like kind of the environment assets of a world, like from entirely from scratch. Um, mm. So it's been uh, really cool to see people uh, gel with it because I don't think environment art is particularly my uh, kind of forte but um, I tried my oh, best oh it's great man it looks really nice like the, <laughs> the variety of uh, quote unquote biomes um, in the <laughs> game uh, really impressive the Harbour Towns is a great uh, RPG location and I think that you deserve um, the praise you're getting for that side of things for sure um, I, I do actually want to ask a bit about monster design mm -hmm. so you've I think your monsters are really, really good. I think, like, um, not to compare too much to Pokemon, but when Pokemon's like, it's a shoe with a face or whatever, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not entirely digging 
the whole deal especially as like the kind of roster expands and expands it becomes um some of the designs seem quite abstract to me some of them are still absolutely beautiful but i'm really curious like how did you approach that side of things where do you get ideas for these monsters from and how do you make sure they all kind of like fit in the same universe you know conceptually or logically this is obviously the core of kind of the the, the sell of the game is like hey there's monsters to collect and you like monsters right um (laughs) it was kind of like for one like to be a bit self-indulgent like it's kind of a dream come true to get to make this stuff because i think as we've said before like on our uh, cursed pokemon episode um (laughs) like I had my brain kind of like irreversibly rewired from playing Pokemon at the age of like six. And I basically spent my whole life like doodling like monsters and stuff. And I knew like early on, like, okay, if we got to work on this, it would be a lot of fun to get to do that. Like to get to make like your own like monster game roster. It was kind of a sense of like, even if this completely flops and we don't break like 5,000 copies, like it would have been fun to have done. And that was kind of part of it. Cause you know, you never know how things are going to shake out with a startup. I, so there's a few rules early on that I settled on when it comes to designing the monsters. One of them was, okay, I don't want to do what I call like the elemental animal rule. Um, Pokemon's like the best at this. They excel at this greatly. Um, you know, this is like a fox plus fire, or this is like a cat plus grass. Uh, this plus, el- like animal plus element is a very Pokemon rule. And again, Pokemon's like a pet sim as much as it is an RPG. Um, mm. So it makes a lot of sense given the kind of thematic nature of the kind of experience in pokemon and i feel like a lot of games there's a lot of like cool like um you know indie monster collecting games but a lot of their uh, monsters also lean into that kind of approach to like this is what the, how we theme the monsters it's like uh you know poison bird or whatever um and i wanted to kind of get away from that and i wanted to make it so kind of like taking a step back we wanted cassette beasts to be something that is like this isn't a quote-unquote pokemon clone this is mm just like a game in this genre as much as Digimon is, as much as you know, Persona is, um, Yokai Watch. There's like a ton of them, really. So we, we kind of needed to kind of settle on our own identity. And, you know, the transforming into monsters kind of helps a lot with that. Um, and, one of them, and one of the things we have to kind of overcome was like, how do we set apart the identity of the monsters of Cassette Beasts? So one rule, again, was uh, no elemental monsters. Mm. Um, so kind of part of the lore of the games, there's a lot of inspiration, a lot of kind of the themes of the game involve kind of like the concept of ideas and like where ideas come from and how they influence us and kind of art and creation. And um, we kind of wanted to tie a lot into that. So we take a lot from kind of like kind of cryptozoology, you know, like things like, uh, you know, chupacabras and stuff, you know, like monsters that like rumored to exist um, mm. is a big influence or like... Um, kind of like mythology as well we have like a lot of like mythological things um we also like merging kind of like like human iconography with creatures so like our like most popular one is like traffic crab because it's kind of got a cone on its back for a shell and stuff like that um kind of incorporating like like human junk into the monster designs to kind of give them a set like kind of a weird inorganic kind of look um Mm. and then also one thing that helps again with um kind of unifying all of the designs is that we have like a really limited color palette of like 14 sets of colors so like there's one white shade across everything there's one red shade there's one orange shade and it kind of feels a little bit like how like in lego there's like a limited kind of pool of plastic colors so Mm. everything in those colors kind of fits together yeah i think that helps a lot in kind of unifying the set another rule was you know in the internal logic of the game you're transforming into monsters so you can fight better so none of the monsters could be things that like 
it would feel like a step down from just like decking something uh, yourself. Um, right. So, <laughs> like we had, I, I, there were some monsters I'd sketch, and I'd be like, I'd, I'd feel worse in a fight if I turned into that. So, like, <laughs> back to the drawing board. It has to be a bit cooler. And I think a lot of the monsters tend to be kind of bipedal, a bit meaner looking, or have weaponry and things. Um, not kind of overboard with Digimon, where they've got like three Gatling guns on them. We do have one <laughs> Gatling gun monster, actually. Maybe I shouldn't uh, be so quick to judge. Um, I think, I think one thing we want to do is basically kind of sell the idea almost that this is like a set of like action figures that you could imagine buying they're all right. kind of weird they've got this merged like this kind of like common plastic color to them there's a kind of like a shiny inorganicness to them and it kind of lends itself well to the kind of like weirdly kind of dreamlike atmosphere of the game that mm. there's these kind of weird like toys come to life kind of vibe to these monsters if you could turn one monster into an amiibo which one would it be <sighs> the heart pick is probably one of the starter monsters Traffic Crab is probably the popular one. We have like a monster called Pom Bomb, which is kind of like a Pomeranian, uh, right. like a bomb theme. Uh, that's like that's the uh, the obvious like this is getting turned into a plush if anything is right. Uh, a mascot cell. Um, maybe that's a bit too easy. I feel like uh, Traffic Crab is going to become real British wildlife in the post-Brexit time. So I think that's oh yeah, does. here's hoping. So, yeah, <laughs> we'll see those all over like the South Coast. I think in a few years. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like when. So when you you know you started making the game, you have this schedule. Like, what do you make a basic prototype? Like, what do you need next to kind of secure funding, basically? So for us, we had a kind of a weird approach where we essentially made our prototype didn't have anything that's really like in the game as you play it. We right. essentially had like a test map that has like the physics and all the physics and some of the abilities you get in the world were there, and it was kind of like a here's a little obstacle course where you do some battles as you go and like hey, this is what the game could feel like if you funded it. It was kind of a hard sell because we didn't have like the time to kind of create the start of the game. We didn't have the time to kind of create like the opening maps and things. Mm. Um, we really wanted to get kind of a publisher on board as soon as possible because we were kind of very nervous and stressed out about kind of running out of money. Um, so we essentially had like an engine preview of like, this is our monster collecting engine. This is like, you can see some of the traffic crabs walking around early on. Um, you have a partner following you and there's like dialogues in the world and it was I don't know if it was the right approach I don't know what the best approach would be for a game like this I guess like a lot of publishers want to see something kind of very defined early on it gives you a great indication as to what the final experience would be like but also that can take a lot of time and money Mm. especially for a game that requires so much of it to exist before that start can happen so you might think like the demo that we that we put out early on that was kind of like what our pitch was but we didn't have like any of that stuff in essentially so we had this like early build that was like hey here's what cassette beast could feel like uh, take our word for it and right. we didn't really get much attention and we kind of were stressing out around like the start of 2020 um again maybe we were kind of too eager to get something um early on like kind of funded and stuff um but what we had really was very very early and we weren't really getting anyone kind of interested um so we kind of stressed out and came up with this plan where we were like, instead of kind of doing this on the private side of like, you know, shipping around publishers, we kind of said like, what if we put this out there ourselves, announce it, and if we get any press from that, then maybe people will get interested because, you know, indie publishers love to see games that can get press kind of organically on their own. Mm. Um, so essentially from in the first like quarter of um, 2020, uh, we started kind of, 
shifting gears into like, okay, how would we promote, like announce this and putting together like an announcement trailer. So we kind of started making like a lot of like scenes early on that were like, okay, there's one of the very, very first trailer. There's like a shot of someone running down like a snowy field and that doesn't exist in the game. That was like a snow map that I put together so I could record that shot for a trailer. Um, <laughs> but we have those assets. So there's like a snow, eventually we, there's a snow area in the game, but just that particular one doesn't exist. Um, or like we, we animated a bunch of monsters, but the animation, basically all the assets that were in that very, very early like announcement trailer were what we had and we had nothing beyond that. And it was essentially like a, hey, I think we can cut together a cool trailer using what mm. we have that maybe we can get some press. And in kind of a stars aligning moment, the pandemic happened and there was no game news for a while. And, right. um, and I think it was going to be Jeff Keighley had announced like the kind of summer of games fest in May 2020. Right. And I think it was the week before that. So there was nothing going on in games press. And mm. I think we just like emailed it around like everyone. And then, like, you know, Kotaku and Rock, Paper, Shotgun ran with, like, a, hey, there's this cool lo-fi Pokemon game with tapes. And I I don't have proof, but I think getting that press, like, that much press early on because we happened to hit in, like, a snow news day is what got publishers, like, to kind of get back to us and kind of, like, be like, okay, now there's interest in this, clearly. So it was a bit of a stars aligning moment and, like, a, you know, terrible worldwide pandemic that kind of set us up, I think, to mm. get publishing i mean it could i think we would have stuck with it regardless and it could have been that it would have worked out regardless but i think um getting our publisher raw fury on board at that point i think came from us making this kind of uh leap to kind of go public with the game very early on one of the downsides of that of course being is that you then lose an announcement trailer opportunity uh right. samuel i'm sure you are very familiar with like <laughs> you know how valuable things like that can be when it comes to games press oh, so yeah. we kind of started off um with already having announced and being years and years out so we are kind of like marketing campaign had to be kind of structured around that out of necessity but i think that is what got us i like to believe that's kind of what happened to cause this to get published i don't think there is necessarily a playbook for how games find publishers but i know no. that when people go to gdc for example they're often going there to try and find a publishing deal for you know a prototype they've worked on or you know a project they're pitching or mm -hmm. you know i think there are like varying degrees of this people get publishing deals from like basically a powerpoint and some people get it from uh you know from a an existing demo or they get they can even get it like deep into development when there's like a year to go and they just need to run a marketing campaign and get some qa or something so how unusual do you think your your experience was there um, i think it was pretty unusual i mean to an extent um, a lot of indies also get picked up by like putting a cool thing out on social media and then like right. say hey let's talk this looks cool i mean and there's games that have been published because they did a gif that did like 1000 you know likes on twitter and you know gifs i think visuals sell you know a cool looking game and a gif that's an indie game you know that sells publishers are interesting in things that like look really cool from just a glance so i think i think getting seen because you've got a little bit of press attention is probably not super uncommon but right. i think our game um our game, again, crucially, isn't one where we designed it to be, like, the most detailed, beautiful pixel art that you can possibly do, um, because that's... I mean, I think I could make, like, a nice screenshot for a game like that, but I don't know if I could, like, drag that out to a full game. Um, yeah. So I think our game situation is fairly unusual, but um, not it's not super off-mark at the same time. Okay, that makes sense. 
So how many publishers did you have get in touch off the back of that? Was it just Raw Fury? Did you have multiple conversations or was it like, okay, this is the one right away. Let's go with it. Um, we had a few, we had quite a bunch of conversations with folks. Raw Fury was someone we were really keen on working with early on. So it was, we were kind of super chuffed to actually get to work with them as our proper publisher. So we, we were in talks with quite a few. It, ultimately, it was a case of like, who do we think is like the right fit for this and kind of get the vibe. And we definitely felt like from Raw Fury, like early on, they like got it. And right. um, I think that's like super key because I think it's very possible to work with a publisher who like knows that your game has potential, but doesn't like under no one there like understands why people like it. And right. if people if your publisher aren't like championing you themselves, then I think you're going to kind of fight an uphill battle. I think. Um, no. mm. So yeah, we had a few in t- um, get in touch with us. I think um, also Raw Fury's uh, terms. Um, don't I think one thing that was very crucial to us is that we wanted to keep rights to our IP. Um, right. which you know, Raw Fury um, allows as part of their contract, which I can say because it's public. Um, <laughs> but you know, there were a few publishers that were like, they, they needed like a buyout of the IP, and that's like fine, but that just kind of wasn't what we want. I think um, it's very important to us that like we own this, like we own cassette beats. No matter what happens going forward, like this is something we own as an IP. Um, right. And it's you know, if you've always got something that you own, then that's like hugely important. I think. Yeah, <sighs> absolutely. I- I've skipped um, skipped ahead a little bit here, but there's one <laughs> no, other thing I was going to ask you, which was I was really curious about because you you use an open source engine called Godot for your mm-hmm. for uh, for cassette beast, and I think it's it's interesting because um, one of the Eurogamer comments said, uh, "Oh, is this the highest profile game using Godot yet?" And then someone said, "Well, actually, Sonic Colors Ultimate is rumored to have used <laughs> it as well." Um, but I was curious, like, what goes into picking an engine? Because I think it's something that it's maybe the thing that people understand the least in terms oh, yeah. of like how people talk about this stuff on the mm. on the internet so what is that discussion like and how does it affect the the way you make the game yeah we actually jumped through a ton so i mean this is really down to tom because you know he's like the sole programmer on the project and what he is able to make kind of like makes or breaks the whole thing um so we kind of like trialed out essentially we had like a bunch of assets and we'd kind of see, we trialed out like okay What's the pipeline of getting stuff into this engine and how does it look when we do it? So we, we even like trialed out like Unreal Engine and like put some of the basic assets of the game in that. Um, and it was like, wow, this lighting looks like fantastic. But um, like the pixel art support in Unreal Engine is like non-existent and like Unity and things. And um, Godot was very kind of up and coming at the time. And like uh, I had never heard of it. Uh, Tom was super keen on it. Uh, one of the things about it that's really uh, good is that it's open source, which means that you know, say if you have an issue with Unity, that's like a Unity bug, you have to kind of like tell the Unity developers and like hopefully they fix it or you create like a workaround. But, you know, Tom is able to just kind of like, okay, there's an engine bug. Okay, I've fixed Godot. Now there's no engine bug. Um, and also one thing about it is that it's very lightweight. So something like Unreal Engine, you know, if you're making like a first person horror experience, it's like, plug in and play it's like designed to make that kind of thing and it will look very good very early on and it would function very well as well you know you can drop in like a first person like character porn into unreal engine and get like a first person engine running in like 10 minutes max um but trying to use that engine to make a game like cassette beasts is kind of like fighting against all that stuff that's there for that um but because godot was kind of lightweight it's not really designed to make any particular kind of game which means that you can make you can kind of tailor it for what you want to make very easily. Um, so you know, Tom worked on some tooling and stuff for like importing assets. And I think one thing that ultimately we ended up with and was really important was like 
okay, how long does it take for me to have this animated monster to getting it, getting it like running in the game? Right. Um, and in another engine, that might take a bunch of button clicks and it might be a pain in the ass. But in Godot, it's like, right, okay, we've created like a sprite importer. We've created a tool for previewing monsters. And it takes like, there's like nothing. There's like no time at all between like, you know, finishing drawing something and getting it running in the game. Right. So the pipeline of getting everything, you know, from paper to running in the game is like extremely fast. And I think that allows us to make like, what is like quite a big game for you know two full-time developers mm. um i think without that kind of like quick pipeline if you're like doing a lot of like messing around with like you know the minutiae of configuration and stuff and like importing sprite sheets and like making sure the uh it, the sprite sheets imported on the right set like sizes and stuff all that stuff like takes a lot of time and it really builds up when you've only got a small team so i think godot is like le- like it's allowed us to have this kind of fast pipeline essentially Right, right. Is there another factor where, because it's open source, you don't have to pay licensing fees for the? Engine? Oh yeah, that's nice too, for sure. <laughs> uh, that's not me being cynical, but I was just like, <laughs> I was just thinking that is something I know that developers have to weigh up when they yeah. um, they choose technology. So, uh, yeah, okay, interesting. That is really interesting to hear because I I think it really is the thing that people misunderstand the most with how games are made and. People kind of like hear that, like, oh, Frostbite is hard to develop in and stuff like that, or this game looks like that because of this engine, and mm. I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it's just interesting to hear it from a you know a practical standpoint. Um, mm. Okay, interesting. So, I suppose, I suppose going back to the publishing side of things, it sounds really basic, but what does a publisher do, and why does it actually matter? <laughs> I think the publisher essentially exists to do, in our case, like everything that we don't have the time and resources to do, and that's stuff that would still exist even if we were to self-publish so okay you know tom and i are working on the game um but then who's submitting the builds to you know microsoft backend and stuff like that um who's running localization coordination and stuff for getting it translated into languages and who's like tracking those people down um who's doing all the marketing um who's getting you interviews with press so people hear about your game um it's basically like the rest of the iceberg uh, we get to do the other stuff above water, which is just like make the game. Um, but there's like a ton of things that like need to be done. Um, you know, in promotion, um, in QA, you know, it's really useful to have people that can just like test the game constantly and kind of report bugs or kind of gameplay issues. Because, you know, when you're making games in bubbles like ours, like we have no real concept of how easy or hard the game is um, right. because we're very good at it. Um, so it's really useful to kind of have people to kind of say, this has been an issue, even if it's something that we didn't know about. And also just kind of like keep up with production and kind of keep up with like, hey, how are you guys doing? So like having like, Raw Fury being a part of the project is kind of invaluable. Like as much as it is like a two development team project, like a two a two man team project, it's like a project that has like, I don't know, maybe like a hundred people ends up touching the game or kind of influencing its like ability to exist in right. some way. And it's it's really we really wouldn't be able to do all this stuff without them. Yeah, I mean, it really is like everything else apart of the, like in terms of the game production that they kind of sort out. If you've seen our game, that's probably because of them because <laughs> right, we don't have the right. time to be doing it. Yeah, of course. I, uh, yeah, I, I ask um, not because I don't know what a publisher does. Oh, yeah. I, work, I work for one, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just, just really curious to hear it from the devs' perspective. Like, you know, I just... Um, I know obviously some games do launch without without a publisher or like they're mm-hmm. self-published and uh yeah like the the localization thing is a massive massive chunk of work that he's doing as is 
QA uh, when you're launching on multiple platforms. So, yeah, kind of always curious to hear what like the you know what the upside is for for having a publisher versus just getting the game out yourself. Did you localize Lennis Inception? Oh no, no, Lennis Inception basically just released in English on its like little Java engine on PC. Right, um, right. Yeah, it had like a, bu- a budget of zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, huge difference in scale of uh, what you're making here. Okay, so how do yours and Tom's skill set divide up? I feel like I've always, you know, you've kind of alluded to it there, but I've always roughly just assumed that this is the art side for you and then, you know, technical brains for Tom. Is <laughs> I'm assuming that's kind of roughly how it divides up. Um, but, like, yeah. um, how do you decide... I guess, like, how do you divide up um, the work and how do you decide what needs to be outsourced, basically, or paid for? So I think it helps with Tom and I because, you know, we have very different skill sets. Um, But also, like, there are some things where we kind of, like, have a Venn diagram kind of closes. So, for example, like, the art and the the main kind of story writing and stuff that I handle, then a lot of the actual kind of design and structure of the game and and also, crucially, like, the whole battle system is, like, all Tom's work. and then mm. we'll do a lot of collaboration with like um kind of okay here's what we want the broad story to be here's what we want these beats to be and like ideas on like um you know certain moves and stuff like that we'll definitely brainstorm together but we are really able to kind of like compartmentalize the kind of project where i'm doing a lot of the kind of visual stuff and he's doing a lot of the kind of like behind the scenes numerical and code stuff um i think it helps so we have a, we have like a lot of different um priorities between us but also at the same time, we have a very similar vision for what the game should be. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like early on that I, I'd propose for the game that he wouldn't be sure on. But like I'd be like, trust me, let's just go with it. And this is the approach. And there's definitely a lot of stuff where like he proposed it early on um, for the game. And I wasn't super sure, but he was like, let's just, we should definitely go with this. And then I trusted him on that and it kind of worked out for the better. It's an interesting question because there's like a lot mm. of crossover in terms of like, okay, this needs to feel like this. This needs to feel like this. Um, mm. The vibe should be like this in a lot of ways, but also there's a lot of like, right? I trust him to just kind of like come up with all the moves, for example, <laughs> and then he trusts me in turn to like design a bunch of the monsters. Um, right. But at the same uh, time, there'll be like a cross uh, back and forth. So like, I'll propose some uh, moves for the characters, um, and then he'll come up with some ideas for monsters. Um, one of our monsters is called Gin and Tonic, which is like a genie <laughs> gin uh, bar cocktail waiter. And right. it's a pun that people keep highlighting. And that was one where, like, he came up with a monster pun name first, and I, like, designed a monster around that. Right, so we do a right. lot of... Uh, I, it's not fair to say that I, like, design all the monsters. Um, because, you know, there's definitely, like, a lot of creative back and forth on that. Um, mm. And again, when it comes down to quest lines and stuff, a lot of it comes from just, like, us riffing ideas. Um, there's one character quest line that, like, we just kind of, like, joked into being and then stuck with. That I won't spoil because it's, like... It's quite like a fun reveal, but I, we were like laughing out loud when we kind of like came up with the idea for it. So I think having like a creative partner who is like not stepping on your toes in terms of what your day to day is, but at the same time is like able to kind of contribute is like hugely important. Yeah. Um, Plus, I guess yeah. someone you can spend loads and loads of time with, right? Because that's the other thing is that you just have each other in a lot of ways. So yeah, it helps that we're we're good mates as well. You know, we can like <laughs> chat about the stuff and like not get each other's nerves too much. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I think you'd have to have like a, part, a creative partner who's like able to kind of 
bounce back and forth with you and also you just get along with you know just like us matthew (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i was i was gonna ask by the time of release are you kind of like fundamentally agreed on everything or are there things in the game where you know you're waiting to see you you know either of you are not sure about the other person's thing and then there's like a i told you so or waiting for the kind of review reaction i think there's a lot of stuff where like i think we we kind of knew that certain things worked out like by the time they were in the game um, right. So, like, one of the things early on was, like, um, Tom was really keen on this, like, there's a feature called the Ranger Captains, which is this quest line where you go around and you, like, um, you meet kind of, like, the leaders of, like, the local community um, kind of protection guild in town. Mm. And they kind of act as, like, faux, like, gym leaders, uh, not to draw yeah. too many comparisons, but um, they're kind of, like, harder <laughs> harder opponents that kind of have particular characters and stuff. And I, I that was something I remember I wasn't, like, super certain on. Because I felt like mm. I don't know, I, I'm not, I couldn't like envision how that fit into the world. Mm. But then in practice, I actually think it adds a huge lot of like a lot of uh, kind of characters to the game. It adds like a lot of uh, reason to kind of explore the world, kind of like a secondary main quest line. And that's mm. something that like work. Like, by the time that was in the game and functioning, and like I got to start like, so like one of the things there was that um, you know, he could he devise his strategies for these characters and then kind of give them names based on their strategies. So like he'd come up with a character and be like, okay, this is Buffy because she buffs herself in battle. Um, And like, that was the extent of her character. And then I had to go in (laughs) and like devise what Buffy looked like, what her voice sounded like and like what her personality was. And that was quite fun because it's kind of like working from prompts. Um, Right. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of decisions that I made early on that he wasn't super certain on that like have since like played out pretty well. Um, It's kind of hard to just like to remember in retrospect, like, how any of this like happened so it's really hard to like but there's, recall there's how there's nothing in the made. final game where you were really like i'm really interested to see how that lands <laughs> there's some stuff i think the whole game was a lot of like i'm interested oh, right. interested to see how that <laughs> lands but now it's landed i'm like okay i'm glad that it did yeah. land as well as it did um Good. i think as well there's a lot of stuff i think we can be overly critical about ourselves um right. like i have high bar for like writing in games i think and a lot of games i feel like i'm not like i don't gel with the writing very much so like there's a lot of writing in the game where i'm like is this too cloying is this a bit fake you know this is stuff that i've written and then like Mm. he'll reassure me is good and then like the press will come out and it'll be like oh that was good or decisions that he'll made he'll have made and he wasn't super certain people would like but i have to be like no trust me i think this is a really great shout right um, right people like it ultimately okay that's interesting so here's a question so you Obviously, yourself and Tom, you have to account for in how you budget a game. But like, mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious about the outsourcing stuff. So, is it? Am I right? I think your brother did the music for this one. Jeff. Yes, that's right. That's good. A bit of nepotism going on there. Nice, of course, uh, classic. <laughs> <laughs> but really great music. Like incredibly. Are you just? Are you from a family of just incredibly talented people? Is that like the the whole <laughs> thing with the Bayless clan? Because uh, yeah, really impressive. But you got so you have a composer to think about, but you also have like um, some quite prominent voice actors in there. So yeah. I suppose how much is that part of the you know the kickoff discussions with Raw Fury about okay, this is what we're going to pay for alongside us, essentially. I mean, so a lot of that was kind of like we come up with a number and we run them by it. Right. Like we run it, run it by them essentially and say like this is what we need to do. And I think one rather than the money monetary budget for this stuff, the real like the real um, bottleneck is time. So, um, for example, the voice acting is stuff that I, like, entirely solo sorted out. And um, that was a case of, like, right, I've done this on Wargroove. I know how much time it takes to, like, do, like, simple, what I call, like, limited voice acting, where, mm. you know, you've got, like, hey, what? And all these little sound bites. And I was like, right, we have enough time to do the 
game with all these voices, we don't have enough time for me to chop up and like direct actual like voice like fully voice cutscenes. We just right. don't have like the kind of team bandwidth. And that was a decision where it was a case of we, we could have afforded it. It really was like a time thing. So it was a case of right, I can do that and we'll just kind of go with that for now. Um and there's a lot of stuff, you know, uh, my brother Joel, um he was working um part time throughout the whole like development. So there's a lot of like um cool like he'd have a bunch of cool ideas and we'd like there's a bunch of like cool music idea would we'd have. But then I would just be like, right, we just don't have the time for that. So let's do like the best version of this that I think we feasibly have time for. And mm-hmm. it kind of like, everything takes longer in game development as well. So it, it kind of shakes out as like, you can go further with a lot of the stuff, but like this is the number we have to like settle on early on as like what we can achieve in the time we have. Um, and then obviously, um, I'm not the solo artist in this project. So like um, Michael, uh, who is um, an animator that we contracted, is a good friend of ours. He did basically handled all of the regular monster animation in the game, so like all right. the cool like attack animations and stuff. And like the amount of monsters that we could get done in that time really came down to like, this is how long it takes an animator to animate one monster. Okay, how many monsters can we animate in that time, really? And we ended up in a number of about like 120 monsters because that was mm-hmm. in the ballpark of like feasibility. Um, yeah. So yeah, like a lot of it really comes down to like less like monetary costs. Because again, we're working on such a small project that even like, even bumping the number of like monster animations up and stuff wouldn't like break the bank. But right. it really comes down to how much time we have with the resources we have. I think. Interesting. So that is super granular, but I've just always been curious about this stuff. Is it like how much <laughs> of it is from the start versus you know how much of it is something you discuss halfway through? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is my last question for this section, Jay. Then I'll ask you some more game specific questions. But okay. how do you decide what to pay yourself to work on your own game? <laughs> sounds bizarre but like you read about like the shovel knight devs li- living out of their savings or whatever and you know these kind of like um gamedeveloper.com articles where people talk about we were running out of money but we did x y and z and to, to get over the line obviously when you have a publishing deal i wonder if it's a slightly different sort of situation so how do you figure out like what you're worth to yourself <laughs> really it's a case of like so this kind of comes down to the pitch for the game because the pitch of the game is how much money you have to recoup in order to you know, start making profit. Right. And it's kind of like, okay, say if you gave yourselves less salary, then you'd, you'd be starting profiting earlier on, right? Um, just right. mathematically. Um, and the main cost of the development of the game is paying ourselves salaries. Um, so it really comes down to a balance of like, how much do we need to like not be struggling? Because again, like if we're doing this for like the next X amount of years, you don't want to be like, you know, scraping by. And all, But also at the same time, how much is enough to kind of like you want to you want to go under the limit where you're you're bumping your own budget up too high mm. so there's kind of a balancing act between like like life costs and also like how much you think you can sell you know yeah maybe if we were making uh like i don't know like a survival crafting you know multiplayer mmo we could pump us we could give ourselves massive salaries because we'd be pretty <laughs> confident that would make it all back um <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's it's kind of a tricky question, isn't it? Um, I think it really yeah it really comes down to it, like your budget essentially and how confident you are that you can make a certain kind of amount of money. Um, right. But at the same time, you know, we had a publisher backing us. We don't have to pretend that we were like struggling the whole time to get by because they were you know helping us out like they were financing us essentially for the project, which is great. You know, I hope it's not like crash to ask like would this not have happened without without that publisher backing when it happened. Yeah, I mean, um, like we had backup plans where, like, if no one published us, we'd like halve our budget, and then 
do a second round potentially and like see right. if anyone else wants to give ourselves money at which point we would have had to like you know decimate our salaries um so yeah it, it really comes down to like how much we think we can get someone to invest versus how much is like wise to ask someone to invest mm. but there's yeah. that initial bit of runway it must be quite scary because yeah yeah nothing's confirmed and it's costing you money from oh yeah day one. like before we had any publisher there was this, there was like a large period of time where you're like just running by on salaries and i i don't recall it like super well i think because i was stressed but i think that's a good indication <laughs> of like what i was feeling at the time uh, okay Jay, i did have one more question to this i've not been the plan so don't feel like you have to answer okay, okay. but um what is a milestone with a publisher like what's um, that whole situation like well what's super cool actually here is uh raw fury like don't operate on milestones so i think one thing that's quite challenging about milestones is that like they're quite arbitrary you know what i mean like if a publisher says like okay you need to have finished like work like level one well what is level one like level one is like what you say it is so there's challenges of like are you both in agreement on like what one level counts as in order for you to have like hit your contractual milestones um it can be really abstract because you're using games terms that you've defined in order to get your money which is very real from your publisher again like raw fury don't operate on uh milestones so we were pretty we got to kind of like make the game at our pace and not have to kind of structure our month on month based around certain aspects of the game like for example like a lot of the script and story stuff came in much later so if the milestone was like you need to have finished like one quest then you start asking questions of like okay do we just put a placeholder quest in here so we can like hit our milestone but then like that's eating up development time and content that isn't real you start to get into some weird territory there um so i'm really glad that we've just been able to kind of develop the game at the pace that we think you know we've been able to we're able to kind of keep at um and again it's really helped us make what is like a not like to big it up but i think in terms of the scale and the time we've made something pretty big yeah um, and i think that again not having to hit like arbitrary milestones and stuff has really helped us out there okay fantastic well i appreciate your honesty to all my fucking ridiculous questions <laughs> there jay that's no uh, that's good um very different to me asking you how do you feel about the fucking what's it called ko minigame in sonic adventure 2 battle or whatever. <laughs> very different vibes okay let's take a quick break then and we'll come back with some more game specific questions about cassette beasts cool Welcome back to the podcast. So, Jay is going to have a sore throat at the end of this podcast because I'm making him talk so much, but it has resulted in some pretty amazing insights so far. And uh, Matthew's uh, kicked back with uh, some Rennie, I assume, and just a Diet Coke, just having a nice Sunday morning. So oh, no. <laughs> I broke my tooth just before we recorded this podcast. Oh, fuck. Again. What, the, the same tooth? Yeah. Oh, no, what, like a bread roll again? Uh, Cocoa Pop. Fuck. Okay, I mean... <laughs> That's tough. Like, have you got an emergency dental treatment plan, man? Oh, I've got. I had one booked in for Wednesday anyway, but I don't want to eat into Jay's precious time with this bullshit. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Eat, eat into too soon, man. I mean, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so uh, yes, got a bunch more questions about cassette beats here, more specifically about the game, um, having um, probe development quite a lot there. So, Jay, at one point you said to me, maybe about six months to a year ago, I think we've made a weird game, and that's stuck in my memory. <laughs> Do you remember why you thought that at the time? 
There's probably a bunch of reasons. I think the whole game like concept is weird. I think the transforming into cassette tape, like into monsters with cassette <laughs> tapes, is kind of like innately weird. Um, yeah. But I like part of me likes to think that you know people like weird games and maybe like making game I like maybe making a game idea that has got a little bit of weirdness to it instead of something broad is maybe like what people want. You know, there's some weird games that do really well. Like Undertale is a very weird game, but you know people like it because it has a lot of personality. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly why I said that. Maybe it's because <laughs> I was like sleep deprived. Um, I don't know, but I think I do think we've made like an odd game. But I think it's odd in a way that kind of people have like figured out. Like you know, there's some um, at least reading some of the reviews, people have kind of like gelled into what it was we were going with, and that's really nice. Um, mm. Yeah, there's that one lad in the dock in Harbour Town who says ish. It doesn't really make sense that we can record these monsters onto cassette tapes, but don't w- don't think about it too much. He says something <laughs> like that, and I'm like, "That's good. That's Jay telling me don't overthink the concept of this game too much." That's absolutely uh, yeah. I very much enjoyed that. Um, I was curious, what are the non-Pokemon influences on the game? Because I think it's really obvious to just ask questions about about that side of things. But I, you know, I know you have, a, you know, you are a, a rampant media consumer. <laughs> and you can feel that there's more going on in the DNA of this game than just Pokemon. So what else kind of influenced it? It's a good question. So like, I actually think um, maybe just for uh, for listeners, uh, for for context, the actual structure of the game is not really much like Pokemon. Um, like you know, it's a game about collecting monsters in turn-based battles. But then beyond that, I think we diverge a lot from what you might associate with Pokemon. Like for one. Um, the actual like um, world exploration um, is very much inspired by like Zelda. There's a bit of Breath of the Wild in there. I think our reference point was actually uh, linked to the past in terms of the scale of the world, and also the kind of density of like stuff in it. You know, like um, we didn't have time to make like a massive kind of open running across fields with a horse kind of world map. So we went for this kind of compact one where like every kind of quadrant has like lots of puzzles and stuff to do, or like little quests and th- things to see. Um, one of our influences was uh, Digimon World, uh, which is a PlayStation 1 um, pet sim RPG. I don't know if either of you have played this. No, um, I, I always coveted it when I was too old to be watching Digimon at 12 and then thought, oh, what? <laughs> a, a Digimon's on PlayStation where Pokemon is in on Nintendo platforms. And it was like an isometric looking thing. Yeah, what's weird about this is it's not based on, it's not based on Digimon the... Basically, Digimon is a property that started out as, like, this is Tamagotchi for boys. Right. Um, and it was, like, a virtual pet sim. And then Pokemon came out, and then I think Bandai were, like, we're retooling our entire franchise to look like Pokemon. <laughs> right. um, but this is actually a pre-Digimon anime game, which is kind of based on the branding of the virtual pet. So it's a very weird kind of vibe game where you're, like, a kid who gets sent to this, like, magical island where there's, like, all these talking Digimon, and you, like, raise a Digimon... Um, but what I always like connected to with this game as a kid is that you're kind of like plonked into this island, and there's a kind of a case of like go nuts. Like there's like encounters that will be too hard for you, so you have to like train up in the early areas, or there's like areas that will like open up. And the whole game has this kind of like weird, uncanny vibe to it. And the gameplay is incredibly obtuse, and a lot of the puzzles are incredibly obtuse. But it has this kind of weird like Y2K dreamscape feel, and I really like the idea of like just kind of putting you in this world and asking people to like go nuts a bit and kind of run around and kind of figure out what to do and kind of find fun at their own pace. Um, so that's something that I kind of uh, use as a reference point. Um, mm. A lot of a lot of uh, the kind of social aspects I definitely pulled from uh, Persona 5. 
Um, it was very fun because Tom hadn't actually played Persona until we'd finished the game. Um, and I was a bit stressed that he would like play through and be like, oh shit, he just like copied all these ideas. <laughs> um, like, for example, you actually live in, a, in an apartment above a cafe, which I didn't realize was literally the premise of uh, Persona 5 until I'd like made it and it was too late to change. Um, but um, so yeah, I think a lot of the social aspect, I kind of um, like got inspired by Persona. I think the, the um, Persona really excels at that vibe of like hanging out with your friends hanging out with these dumb friends that you've made in this like RPG world. And I really wanted to kind of capture that element. Going back to the Pokemon thing, um, one thing that like the Pokemon, like the anime um, would always have that the games never had was this aspect of like, you're going on an adventure, but you're doing it with friends, you know, like the Brock and Misty type characters. Like, um, so early on, we really liked the idea of like, okay, you're traveling with like an NPC at all times and they're able to like, comment on what's happening and like have conversations about the story so far and stuff um and we also kind of figured that you know if a lot of people who are playing this have played pokemon which is very very light on characterization then it might like pleasantly surprise them a bit to like see that kind of uh, reactivity from the characters in terms of narrative stuff uh i think we took a lot of inspiration from like kind of a there's a lot of grant morrison in here there's a lot of um mm. kind of doom patrol uh grant morrison's multiversity um Grant Morrison, the comic book writer, um, is really good at stories that kind of explore the nature of stories. And there's a lot of that kind of like DNA in the game. And also the sense of like, you can do weird stuff and people will go along with it if the kind of human core is there. Right. right. Um, and also the kind of melding of like, you know, multiverse kind of comic book abstract kind of uh, concepts with like occultism. There's a little bit of that in there as well. Uh, and also kind of the like, subversive kind of left-wing side of it as well um, yeah i suppose you have like all of these these people are from different are they from different versions of reality in yeah this they're kind from of, like, like parallel universes essentially yeah yeah in all kind of in this in this in-between place um <laughs> kind of stranded there that's yeah i suppose i don't really think thought of um, morrison as an influence on that that kind of side of things oh yeah and um i know tom has like a lot of uh, inspirations there's a lot of like sci-fi novels and stuff that he'd uh got inspired by um yeah, again, I think we tried not to make it too gamey. We tried to like turn back on the kind of game references and stuff as well, and kind mm. of turn it into like kind of like a broader kind of, uh, you know, identity of its own as well. Um, and I also had, like a lot of inspiration from like my own life. I, I definitely put a lot of myself into like um, the kind of the partner characters or like as like aspects of like things that I feel about things definitely come up. Uh, I think people draw a lot from their own lives when they write, um, you know, anything. Um, so there's definitely a lot of like myself in there, not to be too indulgent. So I suppose how much did cassette beast change from what you originally conceived of up until release? Because I feel like you and Tom are pretty responsible devs. It seems like you've been on task the whole time with knowing we're going to do this, and the end product is largely what you conceived of. But that's on the outside looking in. Is this the game you plan to make? You know, three and a half years ago. Yeah, I really think we actually kind of. We kind of stuck with it very early on. I think once we had like, once you could see like trailers and stuff of the game, like very early on, I think we had a really strong idea of what it was. I mean, when we were first talking about what the game setting would be, there was a lot of like discussion of like, I think I proposed like something a lot more like urban dystopia, for example. Um, and Tom was like, no, we need this to be like a chill vibes game. We want people to like, want to kind of hang around this world. And mm. that was that was like the right choice. Um, we definitely experimented a lot early on in kind of like what the setting and tone would be. Um, and I wasn't super sure on like 
how what we ended up with would be responded to like very early on at least like it was hard to kind of tell if this was the right vibe but i think as it kind of fleshed out we felt more confident that like okay this is like a nice this is the nice this is the nice vibe this is the nice kind of um kind of tone emotionally for the game um so i think once we like properly started working on it we had like quite a clear vision for it mm. and it basically stayed on track from that point onwards but you know early on we definitely like we had the idea the cassette idea and we didn't really have much else and we definitely had to build a lot of that up yeah so in the game you fuse monster forms to create new ones and i know that was something you planned from the start because i think that was some of the first art you showed me was Mm. here's what happens if you combine two monster designs what challenges does that create logistically and how do you account for that as the game's main writer and artist (laughs) so this is and we haven't even talked much about the fusion system but this is essentially like our headline feature when we were first talking about a game we were like right this needs like usp right this needs like something that no other game is going to do um and it couldn't be open world we were like pretty early on we were like we can't do open world because like pokemon will do open world like inevitably like very soon um and that was pretty right we were pretty correct on that um (laughs) but we were like, okay, relationships and like fusion. Um, so we worked a lot on kind of procedural systems, you know, with Lennis Inception. I'd worked on doing like procedural monster art in uh, Starbound. Um, so we had this sense of like, okay, fusion is something that we could do. We just have to figure out like what that means in the game. And then when we had this, you know, concept of transforming into monsters with cassette tapes, we were like, okay, so then if you're with a partner character who's following you around, because as we said before, you know, you want that experience of hanging out with a friend. Does that mean like fusion is like you and your partner transforming into a single monster together? And like, like that's that's maybe that maybe that's what the weird thing was that I was talking to you about early on because that's like a weird concept. Right. Um, it's kind Ooh. of a strange thing to do. It's very it's like kind of pseudo intimate. Um, and once that kind of came together, we, like conceptually, we were like super on board. Um, what the actual logistics of the fusion system would be is something we kind of had to figure out. It went for a couple of iterations, but um, essentially how the system works in game is it's kind of like a like a super meter. You know, you build up this meter, this fusion meter, and then when it's full, you can trigger it in battle and you can combine your monsters into your monster forms into one big form. And you kind of combine all your moves and stats. So you get this kind of super form buff that you can like blitz boss fights and stuff with. Um, and how that works on the art side is... So every monster is essentially drawn twice. So if you imagine every monster exists as like a sprite sheet with right. like a bespoke animation, and then it also exists as like a modular action figure is a good way of describing it, where, you know, I've drawn the head and the legs and the arms and the bits of the face and stuff like separately, but also always in the same scale. Mm. So if you were to kind of um, mix and match the parts that all fit together... So I think a modular action figure or like a, like a Lego version of them is a good way of Ooh. describing it. Um, and because you, we can animate those pieces separately, you essentially get a like a whole animated character that can like have attack animations and stuff. Because, you know, if I draw like, okay, we have like a moth creature. So it has like a wings that, it can, that the uh, fusion form can use. And then if it uses those wings, they have like an animation where they flap. So the final fused monster, you know, has an animation where it like stamps its feet and flaps its wings because all those parts are like animating together. Um, and that's essentially the breakdown of how the system works. Wow. And the practical side of this was just drawing a shitload of things. Um, <laughs> it was just drawing like a lot of like wings and a lot of legs and a lot of tails. Um, so there's a huge amount of like, like every monster has like at least several bespoke parts. 
Um, mm. There's some like reuse, you know, we can get away with like multiple like lizard legs, for example. You don't need to draw those twice. Mm. But um, yeah, there's a lot of like bespoke art on that side of things. And it's all kind of drawn in like these animations that are all timed to fit together. Mm. Um, and then this essentially could be our like headline feature, you know. Um, people are really into like monster fusions. Uh, people are really into Pokemon fusions where they draw like fan art of like two monsters fused together. Um, but it's also something we knew that like Pokemon would never do or like Digimon would never do. Right. Um, because I don't think not necessarily just the technical side of it, um, but also the fact that there's like 1000 Pokemon now kind of makes it hard to do. Yeah. But also at the same time, like Pikachu is like Pikachu. You can't like dilute the brand of Pikachu by making <laughs> it like now it has wings or whatever, or like yeah. has like a I... robot head or something. You can't like you can't like dilute your like trademarks in that sense. I think they're very keen on the the branding and Pokemon. Um, mm. So we were safe that we had this safe idea of like they will never do this. They like technically and like artistically cannot pull this off. Um, it's mm. also a lot easier to do in pixel art as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that all came together. It was it was the kind of like logical endpoint of like a lot of different decisions and a lot of the project revolves around that i i am actually interested in that that you know because you sort of you identify it as this usp earlier on mm -hmm. and there's like so much heavy lifting has to be done to actually execute it reading a lot of the reviews i am struck by like it comes up a lot and people are talking about it but not every review necessarily identifies it as like this is the thing <laughs> because because there are loads of other ideas in it as well and i am i'm kind of interested in the balance of was there ever any fear of like drowning it out with all the other cool stuff you're doing? You know, like how how do you kind of like surface that and make sure? You know, was it hard to find the the balance of how readily available is the skill? How often do you do it? You know, was there ever a version of this where you fuse? You only ever fuse, as it were, rather than having the individual monsters too, because <laughs> by all accounts, you guys have done loads of interesting stuff with the individual monster battling too. Yeah. Um. I'm actually quite pleased that reviews don't like go into it too much. I, I kind of hoped early on that it would be like, come for the fusion and stay for everything else. I right. think the fusion's cool, <laughs> but I do think it's a USP in terms, in very specifically in terms of it's a selling point, but not necessarily the best point of the game. And right. I was really hoping, I think it was like, um, I think this is why Pokemon always has like a new gimmick every uh, game. Um, right. That isn't actually like that crucial to the game you know yeah, a gigantamax like, for example that's like a fun thing yeah. but it's like not like worth writing that much about because it's like a small part of it and we kind yeah. of saw fusion is like that to an extent like this is something that will get people excited but it's not the stuff that we were excited about when making the game the stuff that we were excited right. about was the characters was like the open world was like the weird bosses and stuff um we think it's super cool and people are like we have like a discord and people are like posting all their like crazy fusion combinations and stuff um but I actually was like hoping it wouldn't be the only thing worth writing about with the game, and I'm kind of glad that like it it is like worth like a sentence or two in reviews. Right, that oh that's oh that's cool. Yeah, because yeah, Catherine was reviewing it for RPS, and the thing she talked most about, and I think this ties into something else Sam was going to ask uh, next, was the um the advanced kind of elemental. Mm -hmm kind of interactions so like one of the you know you have your kind of elemental types but they also kind of almost there's almost like an alchemy between them mm -hmm. where it, it can create positive or negative effects based on which elemental types clash which that really caught my imagination when she was talking about that and it clearly caught her imagination too so i could talk about that for sure yeah, um, yeah go for it yeah yeah so like um 
you know, when we were talking about, okay, we were early on, we want this thing that, you know, people who like Pokemon and games like that can get into, but also we want something that a bit more like, I guess adult isn't the right word. Um, some of our reviews are saying this is Pokemon for adults, and then, like, there are people commenting saying, like, oh, does it have, like, drugs and blood in it? That's so shit. Um, and it's like, that's not, I don't think that's what we mean by adult. Like, that's not the, the vibe. It's more like, like, gameplay and emotionally, potentially. I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, we really wanted to kind of do something with the elements that wasn't just, I mean, Pokemon is a game for kids. I think I like said this uh, a lot last time. Um, it has to be simple. And like the strategy in Pokemon is like very like one step. It's like, okay, if they are water, use electric. It's like one step decision really, um, which is like great. Cause it's like a strategy game. That's like easy enough for you to get into um, as a kid, like a six year old, but also like there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with the optimization when it comes to like the older fans. Um, we wanted to do something different than just having these like multipliers just because we felt like it would make the gameplay like you know that one step gameplay and like, like, tom spearheaded a lot of this stuff with the design of the battle system and we kind of had this system where essentially you have like you know like weaknesses and resistances um and like special you know damage bonuses it's more like 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 attack bonuses but more in terms of like okay so uh, a lightning attack on a water type monster in cassette beasts gives them a conductive status effect which means they take damage every time a lightning attack hits anyone so it's more about these kind of like kind of like reactions and um kind mm. of things that you can add up um if you do a fire type attack on a water type it doesn't do less damage but it gives them a healing steam um kind of buff that gives them health every turn mm. so it's kind of more about like playing with status effects and like mm. um, inducing them on yourself and like inflicting bad ones on your opponents and kind of like get who gets to kind of control the field in terms of like status effects and like the state of monsters so like one of the things mm. we have is um okay if you hit a plastic type with a fire attack then they turn into poison type because they melt but then if you hit them again i love it though there's, there's like a real <laughs> wit to that I think is 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 just really like next level. Yeah, we have these um, little like uh, text boxes that pop up and kind of try and explain the logic to them because it's otherwise like a bit too much to kind of keep track of. <laughs> and I do think it still is quite complicated, um, but I think you can kind of get through the game without like keeping it all in your head. Um, you can kind of broadly just like you know because when you select a monster and select a target, it tells you um, are you going to do a good status effect or a bad status effect. Um, so you kind of get an indication as to what's going on. So you kind of have to, you can kind of like learn the broad strokes of it and not learn the minutiae of it and like get through the game. And I think that's key. Mm. Mm. Yeah, really impressive uh, stuff, Jay. And it, it is drawing praise more generally for how it builds on the formula established by this uh, quote unquote genre. I don't want to keep saying Pokemon. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it is interesting. It's like having that outsider perspective allows you to solve some problems. That, well, not problems, but. I guess figure out new ways to do things that a mm. series that's quite set in its ways cannot do in its nature, right? That's that's one of the advantages of making your own version of this type of game. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, again, we um we started with like the genre and the kind of concept of collecting monsters, and then we didn't like. I think it'd be very easy to be like, okay, let's start with a wholesale Pokemon game, and then what do we change? And I think there are indie games that do that, and like they're really cool, and they're like definitely know what they're going for but we wanted something that kind of like it starts from that point but then like we didn't do like okay you have to go around and collect gym badges and do the elite four we didn't like have any of that because we didn't like keep any of that design from it mm. um so we essentially took the basics of the like genre and then we're like okay 
what cool stuff can we do with this that would be kind of more interesting to us um and we played around with a lot of the moves as well um, one of the cool things we have is like um so our moves work on like a sticker system where like every move is almost like a materia slot you know every tape has like these slots for moves and you can kind of interchange them as you please as long as they're kind of compatible with that tape um and that kind of also applies to like passive effects as well um so you can like you know you can get a monster where you just give it like a like 10 passive attacks and like a one regular attack and you can only do one thing but it's like it's like really broken in like one other aspect and stuff like that we have like a i saw someone on discord like last night they had a tape that was um we have like a self-destruct attack that when you die or your monster tape like breaks it um you know does a splash damage to everyone else in the field but um i didn't realize it makes a lot of sense that actually stacks so they have one attack that they do on themselves Mm -hmm. And then they just have like ten self destruct stickers, and it triggers like ten times. Um, <laughs> and then they just have like a bomb Pokemon or like monster essentially that essentially like takes itself out and like kills everything else. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of like broken strategies you can do, and we think that's really <laughs> funny. And we think people actually don't mind it being broken because they feel like when you when you've like learned a game systems enough that you're able to like completely bust it. I think that's actually fun. And not oh yeah, like, that's like rewarding instead of like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bummer. Yeah, player player creativity being rewarded, like you say. Um, a bomb Voltorb they basically made there. <laughs> there is a slight horror element to the game, Jay, which mm-hmm. feels very you. Um, I think this tonally sets the game apart because it means the game's not wholly wholesome, and mm-hmm. I think that combined with the adult characters you meet means that that's why i can see why people in their 30s or their 20s why this is resonating with them um, can you talk a bit about that side of things and how you the, the elements that you would recognize as adult and how they totally affect the game yeah i mean um so uh yeah for context there's um these boss encounters we call archangels um like one thing that always like disappointed me in like pokemon is that you never fight anything that's like too great that you can't catch it right even when you're fighting like god you know, God is like something that is like balanced for PvP. Um, so like the scale of it, the the set pieces only can only be so far. Um, and we really, I really, really wanted early on to have like boss fights that were like beyond what you can like mimic. Um, so I have these boss fights called like the Archangels, and um, all of them are kind of drawn or like designed in like a kind of horror style where they've all got like a kind of reality warping, incorrect art style that doesn't really match the rest of the game to kind of sell them as these like eldritch beings um i just thought that would be a lot of fun it was just something that early early on i was like this just would be really a really cool thing to see in a game like this and again like we think people really like the kind of horror when it's contrasted with like the kind of cute side of things yeah um so i was like super keen on it and and, and artistically as well it was like really fun to get to do because i got to kind of like um so like one of them was like kind of like a stop motion kind of like like aesthetic to them one of them is designed to like look like something out of like yellow submarine um <laughs> it allowed me to kind of just like go nuts with like art like kind of art assets and kind of like artistic inspiration that doesn't like line up with the rest of the game at all so yeah it was like it was kind of like came out of a place of like that would be fun um we definitely wanted to make something that wasn't like adult exclusively you know like it's ultimately like this is a game you could show to like a 12 year old and it's completely fine um there's nothing too like mature in there but i think thematically there's a lot of like i think i wrote a lot of this game to be kind of like a send-off to my 20s you know i finished writing the script and then i was like turned 30 last year 
I think I put a lot of myself and kind of my feelings about like being an adult and like into the game. And there's a lot of like characters kind of discuss for themselves and they kind of like their own personal quests and like their own personal arcs kind of reflect that. And I think I just kind of hoped that people would kind of gel with that because it was it was kind of like special to me to get to write that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to write a game that kind of felt like, you know, this is this genre, but if you're in your 20s, these are games that are always, even like Persona, which is like much more adult, is like you're playing as like 15 year olds. Um, mm. I wanted yeah. to make one of these games for like people in the like 20s and 30s, essentially, but also in a way where like it's not off putting. There's still kind of cute, cool characters, so like you could be younger and play it, and it would not be like a problem at all, I think. Okay, two really uh, quite like, uh, I guess, dull uh, questions by <laughs> comparison, not artistic questions, but. Did you decide to put the game on Game Pass, or is that a publisher decision when something like that happens? Ooh, I wonder what I can say here. No, it was it was like a it was like a decision that both of us really wanted. I mean, um, like both sides really wanted. Um, we were super keen on it. Um, it's really good for indies. Um, ooh, what can I say? No, yeah, we we were super keen on Game Pass. I think one thing as well is you know we're a st- like a small studio. We're just starting out, and Game Pass is really good at getting a lot of people seeing your game and playing your game right and like you know like early on suddenly having an audience that because i think that's like 25 million game pass like subscribers so having 25 million people who could see your game and Mm. play it is like huge you know i mean Mm. it means that stuff you have going forward has like x amount more fans than it would have otherwise um so we were like super super keen on getting game pass um and a lot of indies are um very pleased that we got it um we're on PC Game Pass right now, and uh, yeah, we'll be hitting the Xbox Game Pass when we release uh, at the end of May. Awesome. So, all right, my last question. Your game is also coming to Switch. Say mm-hmm. you're a developer and you want to put your PC game on Switch. How do you go about doing that? I am not the technically-minded person. <laughs> uh, I, I think it really depends on the engine. So, like, Godot, we used uh, Godot 3.5, which is not necessarily made to port to consoles. Mm. Um so we've been working with like an external team to help porting and stuff. It's been really challenging, and there's kind of a trailblazer sense of it. Um, I think it really comes down to um, so a um, you know having a publisher that has connections to these platforms really helps out. Um, I think it's probably a lot harder to self-publish on like consoles like Switch. Um, again, the caveat that I haven't done any of this stuff myself. <laughs> um, but I think also like you know porting. I think it depends on your engine. You know Unity and Unreal are typically more reliable for porting. Um, but there's also like, you know, game maker games and stuff on Switch. Um, I think it really it really depends on like your experience with working with these platforms and uh, if they know you and having connections and stuff. And that's stuff where, you know, where, you know, having the publisher connections can really uh, come in handy. But otherwise, yeah, it's, I think our engine has uh, been tough. I think um, going forward, Godot 4 is just uh, recently came out, which is kind of the next step of uh, the Godot engine. And that's kind of uh, where a lot of developers will be jumping on board um, mm. and supposedly has a lot like more support um, out the box for platforms like Switch. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's uh, yeah, good to hear about how that sort of stuff mm. works a little bit. So, Jay, just to kind of wrap up then, is there anything else you wanted to say about the game or working on the game as we, uh, as we you know, end the podcast here? Anything, you know, any yeah. like final thoughts? Um, I guess like uh, I've been saying a lot about like you know Tom and I working on the game. I don't want to like I I think it's really easy to kind of uh, sell into the kind of like small like you know two or one man team myths, but it really hasn't been like a 
two man project. You know, I've already mentioned like we've had artists like um like for example uh the art, like artist Sammy who worked on all our portraits kind of that like is half the identity of the game already right there and like um Joel on the music for example I think all the reviews uh that we've had uh have highlighted how cool his music is and it is um mm. I think this has been like a really collaborative kind of project as much as it has been something I've talked about as just the two of us working on um yeah, I guess uh, if any of this sounds cool, you should buy the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I can, Drop I can... the sales pitch at the last second there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's out now on Steam and um, available on PC Game Pass. And yes, on uh, Switch and Xbox on May 25th. I can vouch yeah. this game running on Steam Deck, by the way. It runs very really nicely on Steam Deck. So, um, yeah, uh, f- firm recommendation from me. Um, Jay, I really appreciate your honesty in talking about this game with us. And, uh, no worries, I thanks wish for having the... me on. Yeah, of course. And you should come on again and talk about Metroid at some point. That'd be good. But, oh, I'd um, love to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that sounds great. Uh, yeah, all the best to the console launch, and uh, congrats on making something so cool. Thanks. Ooh. Thanks a bunch. Awesome. In which case, then, Matthew, we wrap up the podcast. If you like this podcast, you want to support us financially, patreon.com slash backpagepod. It was, by the way, really funny to hear Matthew try and remember how to do this stuff last week and then just give up. <laughs> that was really funny for me, listening back to this. Um, we're twitter.com uh, slash backpagepod if you want to follow us on there. I'm going to try and get the podcast on Blue Sky. That seems to be the app people are going to now. The non-cursed. What the fuck is that? It's, fun- it's like the oh. new... It's basically <laughs> Jack Dorsey's new Twitter. Um, oh. But they don't surface... Um, right wing and crypto lads with the blue ticks which is so sh- fucking shit on twitter at the moment i've just oh, got see got I, and I was about to there. pivot the podcast into right wing crypto so. <laughs> yeah it'd be a good yeah, sort of year three for us i think um okay matthew where can people find you on social media at mr basil underscore pesto i'm samuel w roberts you can follow jay at jay where can people follow you uh follow our studio we've got uh bitten studio twitter.com slash bitten studio I, I, I like to pitch the studio instead because my personal handle is like so embarrassing to read out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, follow our game instead. That's good. I do recommend, <laughs> I went to say where to find Jay then, but if you can track him down, he's a, he's a good follow. Um, your Bionicle, <laughs> Bionicle tweets, um, the aforementioned HBO and stars, Fire Emblem memes, some great stuff out there. Um, so yes, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.